Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan Scogg, and I'm here again with... Sky Sky. I feel like we're on an alternating schedule. Right. With I gotta throw there. in a new one. It's kind of like, you know, it's every other. Okay, should we try again? Skiles. Skiles? Yes. The sky is the limit. <laughs> with you. Yes. Just trying to be an encouragement <laughs> over here. Just trying to be an encouragement. You always are. You know, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I got a, got a question for you here today. Okay. okay. And, uh, yeah, I, don't, I have no idea how I'm going to answer this myself. What is your favorite vacation spot? I feel like there, this implies, well, no, I guess it doesn't. You know, a lot of people have like a vacation spot. They go to the same place over and over again. Yes. I feel like that's what the question's getting after. You know, like you have a mm-hmm. favorite spot that I don't have that. I don't either. I mean, Moab's pretty regular, but that's also close. Yeah. I, I think I would say Woodby Island, Washington. Mm. I don't know if you've ever been there. Where? The Puget Sound. Oh, yeah. Uh, off the coast of Seattle. We were actually talking about possibly going there this year. Yeah, my grandma had a cottage there when I was oh, man. Let's see, nine to. That'd I be can't awesome. remember how, when, he, when she ended up moving to southern Utah, but um, man, it magical. What, like, what's it like? Because, you know, I mean, really green. Yeah. And, Pretty pretty good temps year round. Rainy, rainy, yeah. So chilly, but never it was never freezing when I was there. Yeah, um, the beautiful. I mean, convince birds. me that I should go to go there for vacation this year. That's what I'm trying to yes. tell you to do. Is like, most gorgeous walks. Of course, here's the thing too. It's probably all condos now. Yeah, I mean, ugh. yeah. Ugh, I hate that. Mm. But I mean, for her, she had this cottage, so you you had, you know, a just a short walk to the ocean. I'd wake up. So the sound of foghorns every morning. It's like a four million dollar cottage now, probably. <laughs> yeah, if it's still there, I hope that's what it I is. feel like when I see like the you know properties go for sale in the in Provo <laughs> Canyon. You know, yes. it's like this. You get point one acre with a you know four hundred square foot shack for one point five million. It's unreal. it's not a joke, people. It's unreal. It's real. That's yeah, probably that the same. is that's very the real. Same of that not unreal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but too it real. Feels unreal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What about you? So the the coast, but not the city. Not the city. Just the like. The I remember the market. Nature. Okay. But yeah, no, it was. I mean, I remember What's that market. The isn't that the Pikes Pikes Place Market or whatever? Something like that. Because that's what Starbucks named there. That's where they started. Yeah, that, that's what they named their main. Totally. I'm not trying to take this in a coffee direction. Again, coffee. But man, so I already got in birds. I can do that so I, fast. <laughs> I actually would love to cat try to catch bullfrogs as a kid. Oh, nice. They're so enormous. Yeah. yeah. I saw a news article this past week of a toad that was captured. I can't remember where it was. I feel like it might have been Australia or something like that. But it was it was apparently a record toad and the thing was the size of like a mid-sized dog and like this person was holding it up and i mean seriously it was huge stuff of fantasy not the kind of thing i want to run into (laughs) 
Wow. So, do you eat? I mean, you eat frogs or? Frog oh, that's legs? so sad. Yeah. I I like them too much. You know? Yeah. I couldn't do they, it. They're like pets to you. Yeah. I mean, I think the exception in terms of like aquatic yeah life. Um, I hate octopuses. Yeah. So I'd, I'd eat it. What do, do you She'll do, power I mean, over it, you know? You do poultry? Like, you know? Is, <laughs> yeah. Is, will you eat chickens or is that because they're a bird? You just. Oh, totally. Just... <laughs> oh, man. Is this story time? So there was this rooster. So my grandparents in Arkansas. This is had... how every good story starts. <laughs> oh, yes. In Arkansas. There was this rooster. There was a rooster. And, um, of course, one of my chores as a kid was going and collecting the eggs, you know, for breakfast. And um, this rooster had it out for my little brother. I mean, all summer long, anytime he came near this rooster, like, I don't know, just like sensed the fear or something, never bugged me. And of course, we're complaining. It was to, probably an attraction. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, <laughs> felt bad. You know, I mean, he's getting bruised and oh, wow. like, you oh. know, cuts and stuff yeah. from the rooster. And of course, the grandparents are like, "Oh, you know, just deal with it." That's farm life. Yeah. So one one day, my little sister came with me, and that rooster attacked her Oof. once, and we had chicken and dumplings the next day. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember <laughs> my grandpa just it's like your brother's like, yeah. get over it, kid. You know <laughs> exactly. As soon as the girl gets oh in, my goodness. involved, it's and, game over. And us three kids were just watching as my grandpa comes out in one shot, shoots it. My grandma grabs it, cuts off the head. Oh, Is this rated yeah. G podcast? Uh, um, yeah, we're gonna have to it, yeah. put an adult rating on this one. But so. I was so <laughs> I, <laughs> I was just amazed. You know, we actually been talking, uh, which apparently the majority of the world is talking about the same thing right now. But we've been talking about getting chickens in our backyard, yeah, because egg prices are so oh, high. Um, it's an, it's but I haven't crunched the numbers. I just have a, I just have this sense that by the time that I buy chicken feed, and by the time that I pay for the permit that Provo requires for you to have chickens in your backyard, and by the time that I have to pay to fix the grass for all the stuff that gets messed up from having chickens, yeah, I just feel like I'm not going to be coming out ahead <laughs> financially speaking on that deal. Yeah. I'm like. You know, yeah. Then uh, my wife is like, "Oh, but like, you know, they'd be like the pets, pets for the girls and stuff." And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> but it's tempting too, because I mean, eggs are crazy right now, it's, like three times the price. Yeah, it's outrageous. Were a couple months ago, I'm like, yep. what is going on here? Yeah, there's a conspiracy apparently that uh, you know all the big egg companies got together and cut a backroom deal on this thing. So I don't know. Wow. I don't know. Well, this is America. <laughs> that is that is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, my my favorite vacation spot. Uh, you know, here here's what's really nice is uh, you know as, as people who've listened to the podcast know I grew up in in the Panhandle of Texas where it's just flat yellow dead yellow grass as far as the eye can see. I mean, you can literally. I just use that incorrectly, but it feels like you can literally, <laughs> you can literally like stand flat on the ground and see around the entire world, you know? Yeah. You know, like, like they say that you can't see the curvature of the earth when you're at 35,000 feet in an airplane because you're not high enough, but I'm pretty sure you can see it if you're just, just standing. standing up in the Texas panhandle. That's how, <laughs> the sidewalk. that's how flat it is. The only curvature is the curvature of the earth. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and so we would always love vacationing. Not not a, not as much as a kid. We only did this a couple times as a kid, but 
my wife and I, when we lived in Kentucky, even we would, we would go to the mountains as much as we could. And of course then it was the Smoky mountains, but I always loved, love the Rockies. And that's where, you know, if I could vacation anywhere, it's going to be in the mountains. And so I still have this weird experience having only lived here for a little over a year in Provo, Utah, where I walk outside and I feel like I just walked out of my vacation cabin because yeah. I see these mountains out there. I'm just like, this is, this is it. So I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like it, my favorite vacation spot is where I live right now, which is pretty amazing. It's a great feeling. Like world-class skiing, which I haven't done any of yet, but I will hopefully this year. Uh, we are getting record good snow here in Utah yes. for like the last 40 years or something like that. Yeah. We haven't had as much snow as we're having now. So, um, yeah, oh, I, so I mean, I've, I feel lame you. answering that, but like, really, this is where I would come to vacation. I, I hear you. And if, yeah. if people haven't been to Utah, Salt Lake is pretty amazing, but go south to Utah Valley. Oh yeah. It is so gorgeous. Yep. I, yeah, I feel so blessed to and Utah up and is, see these is, mountains. It's varied as well. That's the yes. cool thing about it is, you know, up here you have that really classic, especially when you get up into the canyons, just that, you know, pine trees, aspens, huge mountains, rocks everywhere, lots of snow up on the mountains. And then you go just a few hours south and you've got all the cool red rock and, yes. you know, everything else um, with the slot canyons and... Uh, of course, you mentioned Moab with arches oh, and everything so else. Gorgeous. So, I mean, seriously, like this is the place I would come to vacation. It's where I live. But having said that, I actually had a lot of fun. We went down to San Diego this year just for a few days to get away as a family. And yeah, I mean, just exploring the beaches down there and everything. I've never been a beach person, but I think now that I live in the mountains, I do appreciate getting away to the beach every once in a while. So yeah. it was fun. That's good. Did you go to the zoo? We did. Went to the San Diego Zoo, and uh, that is a cool. It is a cool zoo. That's pro- it. it probably is the because we go to zoos almost everywhere we go. It's just what I mean. Even when our kids are grown, we're still going to go to zoos everywhere we go because we just love zoos. But uh, yeah, it's it's you know, we actually went. Uh, we were in San Diego in October, and it was. Um, we went there looking forward to having like kind of that classic mid seventies San Diego weather. Well, the week we're there in October, they have this record heat wave. And so it was 96 degrees, which never happens in San Diego on the day that we went to the zoo. So some of the parts of the zoo were really miserable, but what's so cool about it is the zoo has all this elevation change. And also they've planted all of the like botanicals of the zoo are planted, you know, according to whatever region that uh, you're supposed to be in when That's you're amazing. exploring the zoo. And so you actually could feel about a 15 degree temperature drop when you go from the kind of the top where they have a lot of the sub-Saharan Africa, not very many trees, desert kind of feel. And then you go down this steep hill that, you know, is quite long and you get into what's supposed to represent more of a rainforest, a rainforest environment. It's just thick vegetation. You could feel the temperature change in a drastic way. I was like, this is pretty neat, that you know. So and I don't cool. know if I would have got that effect if if it wasn't a hot day. So, yeah. anyways, enough about zoos and vacation spots. As fun as that is, let's get into the material here. Um, so this week, which if you listen to our podcast immediately previous to this, I've 
uh, flubbed. I don't know if that's a word, but it's what came to mind. I flubbed up <laughs> on the uh, on the announcing of what we're in this week. Zoo terminology. Yeah, that's flubbed. probably what it is. Um, I said that we were going to be in John 2 to 4, but actually this week's lesson, which is January 30th to February 5th, if you're following in real time, um, if not, again, you'll get just as much out of this, even if you're not tracking in real time. But we're looking at Matthew 4 and Luke 4 to 5. And the title of this lesson in the Sunday School Manual is The Spirit of the Lord is Upon Me. And so, uh, yeah, in these passages of uh, Scripture that are being covered, um, you've got, of course, the uh, temptation narrative. You've got kind of this anticipation of Christ being announced as Messiah, um, especially in the story that's going on, um, even in uh, Nazareth, you know, and him going into the synagogue and reading a passage from Isaiah and, and announcing himself. Um, then you've got, yeah, just various um, aspects of Jesus beginning his messianic ministry. Um, so you've got various stories being told about Jesus uh, going about and preaching and teaching, uh, and then he goes about and he does lots of healings of various people, he expresses or shows his power over demonic forces by casting out demons. And uh, um, yeah, and then again, there is kind of a final emphasis in Luke anyways on his uh, preaching, teaching ministry as being really what's primary in his mind of why he came. Because even when great crowds show up and they're like, heal us, heal us, he's like, I've got to go preach to more people. I've got to go announce the coming of the kingdom, you know, so... Um, that's the gist of of what's going on now. Into the actual curriculum, uh, we start with covering those temptation narratives where Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted. And the subtitle there is "Heavenly Father has given us the power and means to resist temptation." So we will cover why we would really start in a different place when we interpret that passage. It's not that we wouldn't agree with that. Um, again. You know, and I'm not intending to get into it now, but from an evangelical Christian perspective, one of the things we consistently see in LDS teaching and doctrine is a lack of remember, remembering and recognizing and glorying God for the indicatives of the gospel, what God is accomplishing in Christ and the gospel. We don't see that, you know, being highlighted hardly ever within this teaching. Instead, what you see is there's an immediate jump to these imperatives of how you live in light of the example. So it's always this emphasis on how does this relate to you? What do you do? Rather than allowing your soul to soak in what Jesus has done for you and in your place, which is the announcement of what God is doing in the world for us. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. You know, that's the the uh, euangelion, like we worship God because of what he's done for us not just because Jesus came and set a good example for us, though that is true, but that's not, again, the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is what Christ has done. Um, so we'll talk about how we differ on how we would interpret those temptation passages uh, because of that. Uh, and then the next section is Luke four sixteen to 32, and uh, that is, of course, the story of Jesus in Nazareth. And the subheading there is Jesus Christ is the prophesied Messiah. I was even wondering some of how the 
understanding would differ between LDS and evangelicals or creed of Christians on what Jesus' messianic ministry was even for. Like, what was the nature of that ministry uh, to begin with? And then uh, the next section is Matthew 4, 18 to 22, and Luke 5, 1 to 11. And this is uh, Jesus calling his disciples. And the subheading for that section is following Christ means forsaking our will and accepting his. Um, Again, on the surface, I don't see any problem with that. But my question is, how does the call to do that within an LDS worldview, um, how does that actually align with what we would mean when we would say that exact same sentence? You know, um, what does it mean to forsake your will? and to follow the Lord's. Um, of course, we would, we would see that as a call to obedience and allegiance to the will of God entirely and completely. Um, a literal, like, death to self and life to Christ, as Paul puts it in Galatians 2.20, um, not just sort of a springboard for us uh, reaching our own potential. Now, <clears throat> this... You know, teaching, of course, is supplemented by really where the majority of the meat for their teaching is throughout the week in the individual and family manual. And in that manual, there's a, there's a few more things that are um, worth highlighting. One, in the first section, uh, there's this subtitle, Communing with God Prepares Me to Serve Him. And uh, then they encourage you to think of what you do to feel close to God. How do you? How does this prepare you for the work He wants you to do? So this is the uh, you know implication or the application that's drawn out from Matthew four one to two is uh, you know how how do you feel close to God? What do you do to feel close to Him? And uh, of course. We, we continue to see this difference in how LDS folks approach the Word of God versus how we do. Um, that's a no-brainer from a credo Christian perspective, um, right, Skylar? I mean, yes. you know, we we uh, we don't have any personal way that we practice to feel close to God um, in the way that it seems like it's being encouraged for LDS people to think about here. We don't. We're not seeking some like obscure experience that helps us to feel close to God. From an evangelical Christian perspective, how we draw near to God is by studying the Word. Yeah, you know, it's where by, He promised to be. That's right, and uh, that can be individual, but it's also it, I think it should be pointed out uh, collective, right? In the preaching of the Word, the hearing of the Word, the sacraments as a means of grace. Yep, the biblical sacraments. Yep, that's good. And then the second subheading in the individual and families, Jesus Christ set the example for me by resisting temptation. So you can see that, the again, the primary interpretation or the important truth that's being pointed to in Jesus' temptations is that Jesus set the example for me in how I would resist temptation. And then there's an encouragement that you resist temptation by quoting Scripture. Now, yeah, like that's great, you know, and, and you're going to see um, credo-Christian scholars in commentaries and all the like, uh, study Bibles, whatever you look at, you're going to see this as an implication of the passage. Yes, uh, Jesus Christ set an example for us by resisting temptation. We resist temptation by knowing the Word of God and by you know storing it up in our hearts. And when we are tempted, 
we turn to the truth of God rather than allowing that temptation to lure us away from the truth of God. Yes, but there's something so much more beautiful about what Jesus is doing that the authors are trying to communicate in that passage. And personal that he's doing. You know, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if this is the right analogy, but you know, in mathematics, you have an order of operations. Yeah. Application is last. Yeah. And if it starts creeping into these earlier steps, it's wrong. Yeah. And it's going to be wrong because you don't understand what it is that it's, the text is actually teaching. And, and you can see even in the question, so like in the seminary manual, on this passage, right, um, uh, it says things like this. Understanding our true identity can help us resist temptation. And then it cites this passage. And then it says this. Listen to how something that's personal and real in the God-man becomes abstract. here. How, how can these principles help you access the Savior's power to help you and others resist temptation? You see that? <laughs> uh, it's it's not concrete, real, man. It's like you, you could do this with Aesop's fables, you know? Like, <clears throat> how can these principles... No, it's not, these are events in a real living person. And then, you know, down the line, we'll get to application, but I notice it's, it's the framing A to Z in these manuals. Yeah, I think that, I think that this would be a good place to go ahead and slow down and just camp for a little bit on this temptation passage now versus coming back to it later since we're already walking through it and seeing what the immediate LDS teaching is. They even give a chart, uh, which of course in the last lesson they had a chart that was similar to this, but in the in the uh, individual and family manual there's a chart, and on one side of the chart on the left side column is Jesus Christ, and then on the right side column is me. And the question under the Jesus Christ column first is, what did Satan tempt Christ to do? And then under the me column, you're supposed to answer, what does Satan tempt me to do? And then under the Jesus column, how did Christ prepare to resist temptation? And then under the me column, how can I prepare to resist temptation? So there's just this back and forth of this is nothing more than a uh, an example that's being set for us, but boy, this this passage of scripture is so beautiful. And uh, boy, I, like I'm tempted to just lean in and go, but I want to like kick it over to you to highlight some of the good things that you would see um, in this passage, as far as what we should see as that indicative meaning, that gospel interpretation of what Christ is doing. Oh man, well. There's, there's so much here. Um, I think in terms of first getting straight what happened, um, we've landed on the Joseph Smith so-called translation several times, and once again it pops its head here. Um, and it's actually an emphasis in the seminary manual quite a bit. So, for example, it says, As you use the Joseph Smith translation in the following activity, notice how using it increases your understanding of the Scriptures. Pay close attention to the impressions, etc. Um, well, that's interesting because it literally contradicts what the text teaches. Yeah, the, jo- so the Joseph Smith translation on this text changes it changes it drastically, which yes. is which is sad because you know Matthew, Luke. I mean, these are these passages are some of the least contested when it comes to textual criticism. Yes. Um, they're very reliable, and uh, you know we can be pretty certain that. That uh, th- there's just there's not much that we would 
be tempted to question whether or not this is the true interpretation um, or the true, I guess what I'm trying to say is the true text, you know? Yeah. So he goes, and so it's just weird that this is one that he changes. It's like, you've got no good reason to do that. And that's going to change also the application of it. Right. If you get the it wrong, how do you apply it? Um, So of course for them, and Ridges goes into this using the eighth article of faith, the Bible insofar as it's translated correctly, which typically when LDS use that, they actually mean transmitted. Yeah. Correctly. Who, who is Ridges just to fill? Oh, Ridge, yeah. sorry, David Ridges. He's come up before. He's uh, he wrote the New Testament commentary that's kind of becoming the standard that yeah. you know LDS that are doing a little more reading, which we're trying to do this podcast for you too. You yep. know, people that really want to understand this stuff, they're reading his commentary if they wanted the Deseret book. Saw the several volumes. I mean, it's over a thousand pages. Yep. And um, he, of course, is going to point out Eighth Article of Faith, saying it, this isn't translated correctly. Joseph Smith fixed it. And, of course, according to the Joseph Smith version, uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness himself to, quote, be with God, and then Satan comes. So it's, um, and similarly, when on the temple parapet, um, it's, not Satan, but the spirit. So it's always, he went to be with God and then Satan came. It's, there's not like a causal factor in using Satan to test. Um, and of course, this will impact how they view, well, how do they deal with the Lord's Prayer? A lot of Christians will wonder that. Well, because they changed that too. So this is how David Richards said the Lord's Prayer should read. Um, you know, where it says, we're praying to the Father, lead us not into temptation. Right, which means that's his right to do. Yeah, if he should will, we're praying, please, Father, don't lead us into temptation because we don't think we'll succeed the way Jesus did. Yep, we recognize our fallenness. Well, this is how he says it should be: Do not let us enter into temptation. And literally, he says this as an application based on the Joseph Smith translation. Perhaps one of the things we can learn from this is that we should not deliberately put ourselves in a position to be tempted. Wow. You mean we shouldn't be like Jesus here? (laughs) So it's weird. Once again, you see the model breaking down um, here. But, I mean, most of them will point out these changes. But the fact of the matter is, right, this is the, what, the testing of the anointing, right? We see Christ um, as king, Mm -hmm. as Messiah king, but also there's this suffering servant element there in the Isaiah passages. So a suffering king. Um, rather than one who just lords over everybody. And now the temptation is testing the new Adam the way the first Adam failed. We're going to see if the new Adam succeeds. Where David failed, we're going to see if this king succeeds. That's right. All right. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, in the wilderness, we're going to see if this Israel succeeds. And so we're seeing our king succeed where we failed. That's right. Yeah, so there's there's three particular temptations. Both of the temptations are effectively the same in each account. Um, Matthew's account is probably more of the chronologically correct account because there's language within his account that tends to show that he's trying to be chronological with it. Luke is more so just recounting these things. And so they have a different order, yeah. uh, but that doesn't affect the meaning of the text in either direction. Um, sure. You know, it's just, it's just highlighting these various temptations that are occurring to Jesus. And the first temptation in the, uh, according to the Matthew account is the temptation, or I'm sorry, according to Luke's account, the temptation of, of bread and God's care. Um, and so that's in Luke four, three to four which uh, 
says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, again, we're reading from the English Standard Version. Um, you know, as long as you're reading from a version that is decently accurate, yes. then great. You know, I just, just want to make that note so you know where this is coming from. Um, but that temptation of bread and God's care, I think, is a, is meant to immediately remind us of uh, Israel being in the wilderness, whining, whining about being hungry, whining about not having the f- kind of food that they want, um, whining about not having water, Moses even striking the rock. You know, there's just this lack of trust that God is going to provide, that he's going to care for his people. And, uh, and so when that temptation comes to Jesus, of course, after fasting for 40 days, uh, Jesus resists the temptation and says, man shall not live on bread alone. Um, so he succeeds there. And then the temptation of rule through false worship uh, is seen. In, and by the way, these subheadings are coming from Daryl Bach. I think that he's right on on this stuff. Um, he wrote an excellent commentary on Luke. But uh, in uh, verses 5 to 8, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So there you have a, a temptation to rule through false worship. Worship the devil instead of the one true God, and uh, then you will receive all of this good thing, all these good things in the world. And I think this recalls Israel's false worship in the wilderness again. Jesus is going into the wilderness, I think, uh, primarily with this uh, understanding that Israel failed there in the wilderness, and Jesus is succeeding on every point. And of course, you remember Israel only days into Moses going up onto the mountain, starts to put together a uh, golden calf and worship that and say, this is your gods who were led you out of Egypt. And so they fall into this false worship only days into being rescued by the one true God. Um, they, they go after false idols, and Jesus does not go after this false idol. He doesn't take the easy way out, uh, so to speak, you know, in, in terms of saying, well, yeah, if I if I can just have it easy in this life, then I'll worship whatever is going to get me that ease. Um, no, he succeeds where Israel failed. And then the last one is temp- the temptation to test God's protection, and that was in verse verses 9 to 12 in Luke. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now there, that is, again, a temptation to test God's protection. Don't trust that he's going to protect you. I think this probably recalls even Israel's uh, lack of trust in God's protection when the spies were sent into the land from the wilderness, and they got they went and scouted out Canaan, and they came back, and they said, those guys are monsters and beasts, and there's no way we're going to beat them, and they didn't trust that God was going to protect them, and so God judged them for it. Um, and so there's a consistent lack of trust in God's protection. Again, Everywhere where Israel fails, Jesus, as this true Israel, 
is succeeding. And uh, so as you already mentioned, Skyler, the whole, the whole indicative of this passage, the, the truth of the gospel that we are supposed to cling to, is what is mentioned uh, even in Jesus' ba- baptism just f- before. He is fulfilling all righteousness. He is, be- he is becoming and, and already is, but is uh, proving through this testing that he is the perfectly righteous one who is going to uphold the law of God, who is going to be sinless and in perfection. And the reason he is doing that is because the whole trajectory, of course, is towards him going on onto the cross, where he is going to offer up his perfect life in substitution for his imperfect people, so that by faith in him, his people receive his righteousness as a free gift to cover us before a holy God, because we are the ones who continually fail and fail and fail and fail and fail. And then as we place our faith in Christ, as we've talked about again and again, that's where the imperatives of the gospel come in, because we, we're united to him um, by faith, and we are filled you know, in this whole process with the Holy Spirit, and then we, we desire to grow in righteousness and to be like Jesus. But you can't divorce the indicatives of the gospel from the imperatives. You've got to have those indicatives there. Otherwise, you are committing— There's no gospel. Yeah, you're committing the yeah. same fallacious mistake that the Galatians were committing where Paul says you have abandoned the gospel yeah. because you are starting to turn it into a workspace thing versus a faith in Christ alone thing. Right. Which means you're going to either exaggerate your own ability or lower the holiness of God or both, right? One of those things have to give. Yep. Um, yeah. Did you have any other comments on the temptation passage in particular from anything else you'd read or interacted with? Absolutely. There's, um, I think it's, it's fascinating um, that each one of Jesus's responses is a quotation from Deuteronomy. Um, uh, this is the Matthew order, right? Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.16, Deuteronomy 6.13. Um, and because I have to fit it in every week, what's in Deuteronomy 6? <laughs> it is the Shema. The foundational prayer of Israel and of the church. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you keep going, that's where you start seeing all these passages Jesus is quoting from. So when you hear people saying, yeah, he's using Scripture um, to fend off um, temptation, this is true, but it's it's more than, um, I don't know, magic words or you know, manifesting based on words that make you feel a certain way. It's This is rooted in God's work and God's revelation. We are treating the te- text as fixed. This isn't some dance where we find some words that inspire us. We think uh, uh, the text is inspired, not just inspiring. And if, as we go through, right, and see what he's quoting, as you read, you'll see that this is rooted in monotheism. This is rooted in loyalty to God. And by the way, this is one place where um, I want to hear all the um, Margaret Barker fans out there in Mormon land defend your view here. Jesus Christ is quoting Deuteronomy three times here. And according to your thesis, he's wrong to do so, right? For those that don't know, and once again, some of this, I want to separate the Margaret Barker fandom from Margaret Barker herself. We can, we can deal with her work as she published it. 
but she's very popular here. Why don't, why don't you give just like a 30-second rundown on who Margaret Barker is for those okay. who may just be out there and be like, oh, I don't know who this, yes. this person and is. and she's a very relevant Bible scholar uh, to this community in particular. Yeah, a lot of people in Utah are fans. Yes. Her work. And, and I was, and, and frankly, she's a um, fun person to talk to. She's, she's great uh, in some ways. Um, her work, as I've become more believing, of course, I see is more and more dangerous mm-hmm. But uh, at points. But she's interesting and thought-provoking. Um, but what, what you get, kind of like with Bart Ehrman, right, when you deal with him, that's one thing. When you deal with all his um, fans, that's another thing, right? Pop Ermanism. Well, th- I'm gonna I'm gonna interact with Pop Barkerism here. This is the main thesis, and this is how they use it. This is not how she uses it. This is how they are using it. Yeah. Now she's she is not an LDS scholar. No, she's not she, LDS. Yeah. That should be said. Yep. <laughs> with the yep. way that he, she's quoted by some people, you'd think she was. Yeah. Uh, she's a Methodist, liberal Methodist, in England. Yeah. Um, but she does speak at a lot of the conferences uh, out here. Uh, she does a lot of work on the temple, and that fascinates Mormons. But I, I this this would be a bonus episode. I yeah. want to show how her temple work does not defend their view. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. it might not be our view, but it's not their view either. Yeah, and and for just for you know, because I know we have a lot of even just credo Christian listeners who don't yes. even live in Utah, but uh, just just know that. You know, we often will listen to and interact with what is considered one of the more academic, uh, you know, defenders, I guess, of LDS thought life. And that is an organization that's centered here in, in Provo called The Interpreter. And they have a podcast. They actually are walking through this Come Follow Me curriculum as well. And so we'll listen to that many weeks. Skylar, every week, you know, he's he's engaging with that. But every time that I've listened to that podcast, Margaret Barker has come up. Yeah, except this week. Just, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Except this week. Yeah. <laughs> when Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, and they're not all of a sudden saying, well, that's not really Moses. Yeah. Yeah. So so th- this is the framework of the, how they're using her work, right? They see competing theologies in the Old Testament. So, for example, they'll see certain passages you can see God, certain passages you can't. And they claim those are competing schools. There's not a way to read them. From one perspective, they're clearly, in their view, different perspectives. And then what they say is the earlier perspective is more polytheistic and in which you can see God, uh, whereas the later school um, is monotheistic and you can't. And Jesus is a restorer of the older Israelite religion, so it fits their restoration narrative. And they think Joseph Smith is actually restoring what Jesus originally was, and Jesus was originally what Israel was meant to be, rather than what the priests changed it to be. That's their view. So they think Deuteronomy is something made up by scribes at the time of Josiah, claiming Moses said it, and fundamentally altering Israelite religion. Yeah. That's their view. Yep. Okay? They're not using that view here. That's kind of interesting, because our Lord and Savior quotes Deuteronomy authoritatively as a fixed text. He's not doing a dance with the text. Yeah. It's, it's Authoritatively is a fixed meaning, as prophetic and inspired in the Old Testament. That's right. Um, Which is a challenge. I mean, it's that's a challenge. A huge, You've got to deal with yes, that Jesus I hear you, Deuteronomy. I want to hear the interpreter respond to that. Yeah, yeah. If because they, for Jesus to be it. infallible... You know, he, he better he better have the right understanding of the original 
Deuteronomic. Deuteronomistic. I'm looking for that word. I did it the first. Deuteronomistic. Yeah. But he better have the right interpretation. I would think. And so. Unless they know better than Jesus. Exactly. And we would definitively say no. This was one of those passages that challenged me fundamentally. Yeah. Um, it really was. Mm. So, so anyway, um, I hope that made sense. Was yeah. At least, Basically, uh, we're saying Jesus sees Deuteronomy as being the authoritative word of God. Yes. And he quotes it as such, which undermines any academic view that would claim that Deuteronomy was corrupted at some point along the line from whatever the original was or that it was written later by other people who claimed that they were Moses, that's not the view that Jesus took. And so you, you have a big problem if you're trying to claim that Jesus is, you know, the Son of God, existed before, came down, you know, and, and that what he says is final and authoritative. But then you're saying, well, he had the wrong view of Deuteronomy as well. You yeah. Know, you can't say that. No. And um, Joseph Smith didn't fix it either. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so uh, anyway, that's key. And, and also just one similar line, and then I'll get to really something that should be the focus more so is, yeah. you know, in here, one of the things he quotes, if it's King James language, it's the Lord your God. Um, th- sorry, Lord thy God um, in ESV, Lord your God. Notice they're not playing what I think is a game like they do in Luke 1, right, where if there's a distinction between Lord and God, they say, well, God is Elohim and Lord is Jesus. It's, this is one of those verses where you can see it's the same God. <laughs> it's the same being of God. Yes, that being of God exists, Father, Son, Spirit, if you read the entirety of the Bible. But they're not claiming the two gods thing like they were playing with uh, uh, Luke 1 and Mary's hymn. That should be pointed out. And once again, Mark 12, Jesus asked, what's the most important commandment? So the whole Old Testament, what's the most important command of it? And he starts with the Shema in these same sections of Scripture that he's quoting against Satan. So um, now here's one thing that most will miss. And this has echoes to Genesis 3 in a way we don't have time to uh, go into in detail today. Uh, actually, Satan quotes Scripture as well. Yeah. And this is key because they didn't. none of them pointed this out. Um, I think one of them may have mentioned it, actually. But they didn't really land on it. But this is key when we're interacting with like David Riches and what they're claiming to be interpreting scripture. They're using words of scripture against what we affirm with historic Christianity on most things, at least the most important essential things, Trinity, uh, Christology. And what we would say is Satan can quote scripture too. Exactly. That's exactly the point I was making. And in fact, if you look in Genesis 3, Satan does there as well. In fact, one of the problems with the fall was either adding to scripture Eve does, or um, misquoting it. Yep. And once Satan sees he knows it better than she, mm-hmm. that's when he goes in and starts questioning God's uh, trustworthiness. Yeah. So just quoting Scripture is not, just repeating the words of Scripture is not enough. Yeah. There's a worldview of Scripture that's as right. a whole yeah. that needs to be uh, Yeah. Yeah, and so just just for maybe a little further clarity, um, for those who perhaps are not as familiar with the sorts of uh, interactions that we're consistently having with Mormon thought, uh, Mormon thought frequently 
uses proof texts. They they yeah. will they will throw scripture quotes out all over the place, um, and they will just use it. I mean, frankly, a lot of times it's just pretty flippant. It's yes. not in it's not in context. It's not trying to determine what it, what the meaning of that text is according to what the author original author was in, intended to convey or anything like that. They just kind of pull out these various passages and they will squeeze them into their own worldview and show, try to show, well, this proves that my worldview is correct. And, uh, and so there is a just very flippant overall use of the scriptures. And, uh, and so we would point to a text like this and say, just throwing a Bible verse out doesn't mean that you're using it or understanding it correctly. Exactly. Satan himself did that. Yes. Satan himself said, hey, here's a here's a verse of Scripture. Psalm 91, yeah. That's right. And in fact, a uh, uh, psalm that had a lot of significance in that time period as we're finding from the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that. So uh, in terms of last thought, I mean, once again, when you jump to application, it can lead to comments like this. Uh, and to be clear, this wasn't the interpreter. This is someone else. But um, Who is this? This is Engaging Gospel Doctrine yeah. podcast, where, I mean, his takeaway was, well, first, his how he starts, this is about 15 minutes in to his episode on this uh, from a few years ago. So this is a, this is another LDS um, yeah, more, scholar who comes from a much more theologically liberal perspective for than sure. even the interpreter does. Yeah, because I want to, when I'm reacting to this, I want to take into account more than just one particular view of, yeah. of Mormon. And, I, you know, um, Obviously, I keep recommending Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. Yeah. If there's a dividing line I care most about, um, it's with liberalism. Um, I see Jared Anderson, and I hope this is fair, as kind of that relative to something like the manual. That being said, there's ways in which he's more consistent because, frankly, I think Mormonism is liberal theologically. Yeah. Like, our liberals sometimes are conservative relative to just believing LDS belief. Yeah. Um, but um, to be fair, though, to to Jared, whom I've never met, I don't know. Um, That's, he stays that, in. That is Jared. Jared, Jared is, Anderson. Yeah, yeah in engaging gospel, engaging doctrine. gospel doctrine. Yeah, guy. Uh, and yeah. I, I just want to say this so because every time I bring up something out of this podcast, it's incredibly negative and flippant. But I, I want to say he stays in the church. He takes religion seriously, according to his own words. He cares about people. He's a chaplain. I don't want people to get the wrong impression that I'm not willing to at least deal with people as people yeah. on that level. But that being said, I think his treatment of this was exactly the problem we're talking about. And in fact, it is in the manuals and even with the interpreter. There's a, actually quite a unity in jumping to application before even really dissecting what this means, um, it, at least from a believing context that allows all of Scripture to speak, right? Jared Anderson, he is a scholar of these things, but he'll just point out these facts or... Uh, supposed facts, and then just jumps on to application. This is what he says 15 minutes in. We should have a conversation, a dance, a relationship with God and with the Scriptures rather than simply an approach to the Scriptures that is fixed. That's that's how he frames this. But look at how Jesus uh, does. It is written. Notice, he doesn't say, I need to go pray and get an experience. I need to go pray, get a feeling. I need a vision to tell me what to do currently because, you know, these are old. No, what does he say? It is written. It is written. I think Jesus is treating it as fixed. He ends on about 49 minutes in, right? That this is his takeaway from this, using our strengths and our sense of calling and purpose to strengthen ourselves in the face of temptation. Mm. That's his takeaway. Yeah. 
using our strengths and our sense of calling and purpose to strengthen ourselves in the face of temptation. And then we need to face our own darkness, practice being good. And of course, this is in the context of elsewhere saying that salvation is well-being, the path of salvation or the gospel is the path of Christ to become more like our heavenly parents. And um, there's even a statement in there that, you know, we're divine beings. So pretty Mormon, <laughs> actually, uh, in his defense, <laughs> I think. But it's, yeah, I mean, that is not where we go at all. There's no sense of Christ doing anything for us. There's no deep respect for the events that these texts, as interpreted by the apostles, are bringing to us through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Yeah, I mean, it's there's no trembling before the Word of God that's a springboard for other things. And that's, that's the thing, even in the interpreter, right? They say, in every instance, Jesus responds to the scriptures, but they'll say, he follows the words of the prophets, he follows the scriptures. Yeah, which ones? Just any man who claims to be prophet? Because there's tons of warnings about false prophets in here, including in Deuteronomy. And one of them, the main differentiator for Israel as to who's a true prophet is whether they lead you after other gods. Yeah. Does the God you worship, this God? That's the question. And that's totally missed, you know? Yeah. Completely missed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and from a from a credo Christian perspective, <clears throat> you've already alluded to this, but when we and, and we've I guess we both have alluded to this somewhat, but when we teach of how we as believers battle against temptation, um, it never is a uh, you know, strap on your boots a little bit tighter, um, you know, and, and, and get to work. Yeah. You know, it, no. it never is kind of this, this, you know, it's up to you to, to do that and figure it out. And so you need to get tough and make it happen. Um, you'll, you'll hear that in some, you know, I'm not saying that you would never hear an evangelical who probably doesn't have a clear understanding of the gospel and its implications in our lives. You'll hear some who might communicate that kind of language, like, you know, they, oh, you're struggling with, uh, you know, sexual sin. Stop. You know, you, you get that sometimes, but uh, ultimately, w- when you understand what the scriptures are are teaching as a whole, um, it's that we fail on every point, and the gospel is an announcement of how Christ has succeeded at every point where we have failed. He has fulfilled all righteousness in our, righteousness in our place, and as we again believe. In Christ Jesus. So the gospel is not something we do. It's a message we believe. And you see that all over the New Testament. Um, It's not do, do, do. It's Christ has done. Do you believe it? But then you also see Paul using language. You know, he he even says something to this effect in uh, uh, Colossians, just as one example. But he says... We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And then he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So you see, the gospel is something that has come to them. It's something that they heard. Yes. It's something that they believed. 
And then as they believed it, it bear it bears fruit in their life. So the gospel, you know, Paul describes it in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so we believe that the gospel is is this message of what Christ has done that when it is preached and God opens the eyes of an unbeliever to hear it and believe that it is true for them. You know, Paul's language in Galatians 2 is so personal. Um, that that Christ loved me and gave himself yes. for me. You know, it's like this realization of, oh, he did it all in my place. Yes. And when you hear that and believe it, you are, you are filled, you know, you, your belief comes as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, causes you to respond in faith and repentance and to run after Jesus. But it is this hopeful, like Christ has done it for me. It's being filled with the love of God in Christ Jesus in realizing what he's done. And it is a power. The gospel is a power that transforms us as the spirit indwells. We're transformed by the spirit and we begin to walk in the spirit. And so as Paul puts it in Galatians five, he says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so again, when you contrast that to what Jared Anderson is saying over there, and just like you're finding your, your way of battling against it yeah. yourself, and it's you, 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 that's not what we see happening in the New Testament at all. No. It's a increasing dependence upon the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, depending upon God, knowing His Word, trusting Him, praying to Him, being in the Christian community that He provides to you, these means of grace that He gives for us to continue fighting against sin and battling against temptation. But it's all done from a posture of absolute dependence and love of God and knowing that you are uh, comfortable in, in, the, in the sense of you're in his hands, and he is going to protect you. He's going to deliver you. Philippians, you know, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who is it who is doing the work there? Is it you, or is it God doing the work in you? He, talking about God, who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, if you're struggling with temptation, the response and how you uh, fight against that is to increase in your dependence upon God in the gospel, you know, and that's very different from this mentality of, of, uh, do it, do it on your own, you know? Right. And, and I would say that, you know, a lot of uh, Mormon leaders in the 20th century are that do it, do it, do it, do it. You know, I posted the quote from Spencer Kimball in the show notes of last episode where, you know, where it's like, there's this Psalm of remorse and, and Spencer Kimball says, yeah, that, that could not be further away from our view. <laughs> Quotes the Bible to say, yeah, that couldn't right. be further away from yeah. our view. Yeah. How, how could we you know, become great, righteous people if we had that view? Yep. Guess what, Spencer Kimball? It's true. Yeah. Apart from God, we're nothing. That's right. We all deserve hell, and our works avail nothing before a holy God. Even Isaiah says our righteousness is but filthy rags before a holy God. Mm-hmm. That's what Isaiah taught. I'm going to stick with that prophet rather than Kimball. And I want to say this, that that do, 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 you're going to have a softer version on the liberal spectrum of LDSism that's more therapeutic and sensitive toward people. That's Jared Anderson. And I want to affirm this. You know, I'm not saying he's the same. (laughs) What I'm saying is, though, they're flip sides of the same problem because it's still self-centered. It's still therapeutic. It's still no sense of the holiness of God, of the hell we deserve, mm-hmm. and the heaven that we have only in Christ. No man comes to the Father but by the Son, drawn by the Spirit. 
And here's here's something too, and this is something that's just hard to communicate. Um, uh, it's something just as ex- with an experience. The impression I don't want to I don't want the impression though this does happen is that once the spirit calls you, when you mess up, you have to start question. You know we have to start navel gazing on the work of the spirit. The, the, um, we are slowly being transformed. That's our belief as believers. But there are ups and downs. Yeah. And what is the church? It is a hospital for the sick. It's not boot camp for the perfectible. Yep. Right? God will see us through. And when we go to church, it is to rest in him. We need the good news of what he has done. We don't need another weight put on our back by the world. Yep. And I guess this is one sense of a criticism of the LDS position, another plea to other Christians, just to, what are we doing on Sunday? We're resting. We're, right. We come to be renewed as hope, in the hope of Christ, right. that he'll see us through and save us in spite of our sin. You know, He does save us in our sin. He will save us from our sin, but we don't see the from part in a moment. I mean, I've had ups and downs. I've had hard time to, to dealt with a lot of things, right? And I'm not trying to make this a testimony, but yeah. but I go to church to rest, That's to right. rest and hear the good news week by week so that I have hope that even in the dark times that inevitably come, that we have a Savior that's greater than our sin. Yep. We have a Savior that's greater than our depression. Yep. And so we can be open and honest about our sin because we're not saved by our righteousness, we're saved by his righteousness. So in a sense, we are saved by works, but the works of one who actually was worthy, that is the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and him alone. So it's, um, and then he gives it as a free gift, and we see that even in Zechariah with the high priest and, and all that. But I just think that, you know, even how we handle doubt um, is totally f- switched, right? Like, that, that famous question, you know, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, I'm not saved by my certainty either. And I think this is something, you know, it's not saved by righteousness, but it's not like my subjective feeling is also somehow a work. You know, in the manual, it says, class members could share how they have come to know that the save Jesus Christ is their Savior. Now, i got to be careful here. We have confidence in the knowledge is presented in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. But what that means, and if anyone's attended an LDS testimony meeting, it at least used to happen the first week of every month. Everybody gets up, talks about themselves, gets emotional, and they think that means it's true. Yeah, And it, it, people may sound that, they may say that, that sounds harsh. It's true. Just go to one, I, any of them. Yeah. Um, it's not God-centered. It's not Christ-centered. There's no word of God at the center of the pulpit. It's them. Yep. So... They, um, the, the, Jesus says believe, and that doesn't mean no, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean you have no doubts in your Christian life, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 it's, I believe with all I've got, right? Faith is the, as Luther said, it's the ring that clings to the gem that is Christ. And, you know, so there's even ups and downs in terms of your subjective feelings about life. Uh, But on Sunday I go and I believe wholeheartedly, recognizing my unworthiness, recognizing my sin, 
before a holy God that I know is greater and has provided for me and his son by the spirit. Mm. And so I just, I think that should be said. And has been revealed in scripture. In a real historical person. Yes. And that person has been testified unto by the apostles um, that he established within his church to clarify who he is and what he came to do. Absolutely. In the New Testament. Yes, absolutely. And this is even, you know, Jordan Peterson's very big, especially here and with men for some reason, more so than women. But this is a problem I have with even his work, um, right? Fundamentally um, is if if you go to a Bible passage and you treat it the same way you would treat Aesop's fables, yeah, or just some, you know, uh, Pinocchio or something. That's not how we treat it. Yep, we come to this as inspired interpretation of historical events, which was a Jewish understanding of history. Yes, the, you know, often yes. there's this assumption that there was a Greek, uh, you know, mentality going towards the scriptures that saw things as essentially fables, you know, because the Greek, the Greek mind, I don't even know if we want to fully go here, but just quickly, the Greek, the Greek mind would have understood their um, teachings on gods and salvation, all those things. They would have understood that to be mythical. Yeah. Um, And so the, the offense of the Jewish understanding was that God, this God, because of course all their gods were just more these mythical ideas for the purpose of good moral teaching in their minds, but, um, or bad examples yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. But the, the Jewish God is a real God who's actually stepped into human history. And that would have been a really offensive idea to the Greek mind, but that's exactly what is being portrayed. Yes. And, uh, Jesus, Jesus was God stepped into human history yes. and, uh, it's, it, he's a real historical person. Yeah. And, and so here's, here's what that means. You can't, um, you can't primarily rely on any experience that you have of Jesus, um, even if that was some mystical thing, even if you had some vision or some some experience of that nature, which I know this is something that we hear from LDS people all the time. Um, you know, one of the main things I, I hear LDS people actually hold on to when it comes to how they know that the LDS faith is true is they've had some dream, they've had some vision, they've had some experience with God where they know that this must be true because this has occurred to me. Um, but, you know, we, we wouldn't, from a cradle Christian perspective, deny that people can have spiritual experiences, but how do you know that that is a revelation of God and not just a work of, of the devil or a work of, you know, demonic spirits or, or any other thing? It needs to be rooted in the historic person of Jesus, which is which he's testified about in the scriptures, so you need to rightly understand the scriptures, rightly understand him, and then your experience, whatever that may be, is always subject to what you see revealed in the scriptures. And so, if your idea of Jesus and the religious system that you're a part of, um, if that is connected to anything other than the original apostolic attestation to who Jesus is, you're grounding it in the wrong place. Absolutely. I'm not denying you aren't having experiences. Yes, we don't but, need to. Yeah, that's right. But but even false spirits claiming to be Jesus can give experiences. Yeah. You know, um, what does Paul say? Even if an angel from heaven, even if an angel from heaven um, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There's also another passage where he, he also worries about 
you know, some angel or spiritual power claiming to be Jesus that's false. But um, in Deuteronomy, right, how do you test false prophets? Do they lead you after other gods? What does Jesus, and if you want to talk about Jesus as a model, how does Jesus fend off Satan in this passage? He points you to the scriptures, you know, it's, it's there. And, and also going along with your point before, I highly recommend a book called The Bible Among the Myths by John Oswald. I, I can't recommend this book enough. Um, the Jewish mind is that, yes, there's theology um, and interpretation in these events. I mean, in the scriptures, based, but it's always based on something that they claimed happened. That was the difference, you know. And anytime the word myth is used in the New Testament, it's a negative you know, so, you know, there, as we would recognize as liberal theology, right, they'll often be like, yeah, it's a myth, and that, that's what makes it great, you know. But what does Paul say? If he did not rise again, like, we are the most to be, to be pitied, you know. So it, there's a fact, but it's a fact also interpreted. So it's not a historical fact apart from the scriptures because the scriptures are the authoritative interpretation of the fact. It's a fact and an interpretation of the fact. I, I was... I was just locating a passage I want to read just in light of that. Um, because when it, when it comes to experience, mythical experience, you know, where do we objectively ground that? Um, all those sorts of questions. This, this passage actually came to mind as we were just talking about it, but uh, some, some credo Christians, because I, I've had this kind of pitted against me, you know, and it's typically done in a, in a bit of like a, you, there's just an arrogant tone to it, to be honest, but it's like, you know, well, I've, I've actually had a bit vi- like all these people say, I've actually had a vision of Jesus. Have you ever had that? You know, like there'll be this comparison of my experiences are better, or greater, or more substantial than your experiences are. And, uh, and so I think some credo Christians could be left you know, almost, almost desiring that, like, man, wouldn't it be nice if I could have some experiences like that, that I could cling on to? Wouldn't it be nice if I could have a vision of Jesus that I could cling on to? And a lot of credo Christians don't have those sorts of stories or that sort of perspective. Um, you know, I, I know that I certainly haven't. My experience of, of Jesus has never been like some vision of him showing up before me. And to the Christian who thinks that that puts you in a lesser position than your LDS friends. Uh, I just want to read from John chapter 20. Uh, This is when Jesus is appearing to the disciples. It says, starting at 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, remember the context. Thomas is like, unless I see it, I ain't going to believe it. I'm going to believe Jesus is alive unless I see it. I got to see it. I got to have the experience of seeing it with my own two eyes in order to have faith that this is true. So that's the context. Jesus appears to them, and then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, Thomas, and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is a rebuke of Thomas, okay? This isn't like Jesus kind of having a prove-it moment, or this isn't Jesus even trying to show Oh, well, yeah, if you need to see me to have faith, then let me go and show up to you so that you can have faith. This is Jesus actually rebuking Thomas for for having to see him in order to believe. And then verse 28 says, And Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, listen to verse 29. Jesus said to him, 
you have believed because you have, or he says, have you believed because you have seen me? And then listen to this. This is critical. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So to any, you know, credo Christian who is dealing with an LDS argument, oh, I've seen Jesus in a vision. Have you seen Jesus in a vision? I mean, this is where you can quote scripture to them in context and say, well, Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And, and of course, the, the idea is you don't need to see a physical manifestation of Jesus. You will on the last day. Yes. But, but it, it can actually be a sign of the blessing of God that you've never had that, and yet you have faith in the truth of the gospel anyways. Right? And yes, absolutely. And I think there's this sense, this, this idea that, well, if I saw it, I'd believe it. But why do you why do you trust what you see? I mean, look at the consistent atheists, which I don't know if there is one. But the more consistent atheists, atheists, um, David Hume. Yeah, can you trust your sense impressions mm-hmm. to be anything touching outside yourself? So actually, I don't think it's the strength they claim. Yeah, I, I really don't. I think yeah. they're rooting it in a romanticism. Yep that even unbelieving thinkers that we would disagree heavily, you know, disagree with heavily on many things. I think they're right to point out the skepticism yep. of just an individual sense impression. Well, listen to this, Second Peter, going along with what you said. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Here's, here's an eyewitness telling us how it is. Mm-hmm. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Yep. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have a more sure word than that. That's what Peter's saying. Hmm. Prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. It's... That's where our hope is. And that's once right. again, it's not this like subjective certainty. That's that's something that is so devastating when people leave. Yep. They from little kid, they go up there, they imitate uh what they've heard. I you know, I know the church is true, blah, 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 blah. The same rote formula. Anyone LDS or who's attended this meeting heard it every time. Mm-hmm. And you do it from a little kid to you're an old person, you rarely question because you think your foundation is your subjective certainty. So that's why it becomes so dangerous when people start questioning. And then people that start questioning often go so far the other way yep. into Derrida land, David Hume land, Nietzsche land, worse. Yep. And that's why you just, this is, this is what Jesus says, believe on me. Mm. Don't, subjective absolute certainty yeah. in me. Um, that doesn't mean we can't have confidence in everything that's said. Don't hear me wrong, but I just think we get caught between a false alternative, between absolute certainty and absolute uncertainty. Yeah. 
we don't have all the answers. Yep. We have some answers. Obviously, even in this podcast, we're taking on a lot of the criticisms of the faith. I don't have all the answers. I know I don't. Yep. I don't need to. I go to church on Sunday. I worship the triune God who's revealed himself. He's given me enough evidence, and I have complete confidence yep. in the in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone yep. for the salvation of the world, all those who will believe. That's good. Not know, believe. Yep. That's good. Yeah, and, and I mean, just even in addition to all that, um, we, we were even talking some before the podcast uh, about a, a uh, concept that was uh, really, really originated with the reformers and then was developed by a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. But um, it's this idea that uh, there is there is a census divinitus, as Calvin put it, a sense of the divine that uh, that all humanity tends to share. You know, there, there tends to be something in the human psyche. I mean, even what we talked about with, you've quoted uh, Augustine a few times, there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. I think that's leaning into the same idea. But here's the thing, you know, for, for LDS people, if you're familiar with, uh, with Islam and you have Muslim friends, you know that they do the same thing that you do in seeking to ground the truth of their religion in these experiences that they have. They lean into dreams and visions, you know, just as much as an LDS person might, and come to very, very, very different conclusions on who this God is. Yep. And so having, you know, a, a sense of the divine, um, having perhaps some experiences that are that are spiritual, um, again, from our worldview, we would not negate that those experiences are legitimate, but we would question the source of them. Where Where is the source coming from? Is it the true God, or is it, from our perspective, you know, false demonic spirits, yep. not false, they're true, true demonic spirits that are at work in the spiritual realm uh, trying to provoke people towards unbelief in the one true God who has revealed himself objectively in the scriptures. And, uh, and so I, I would just challenge you, how do you know, you know, like you say, you know, from your experience, well, yeah, I think that's enough to maybe know that there's a God out there, but how are you going to discern who this true God is? And if you are just leaning into your own objective, objective experience, you know, you're, you're just on the same playing field as, as many other religions in the world that see religion as nothing more than a subjective feeling that you may have or an experience even that you may have. You, you've got to discern whether or not that spirit that you are interacting with in whatever way is from God. How do you do that? Absolutely. And to show just even a practical quick example to show the difference in epistemology between a faithful Israelite Christian faith right epistemology and what we're interacting with here, but there are a dime a dozen. I mean, just go <laughs> New Age, Oprah, whatever. It's the same kind of stuff, right? Where it's this... It, it, well, that being said, it, I think it is heightened in the LDS system because it's also super hierarchical, regulated, communal, right? Um, but there's... If, if, I, if I quote a verse, where do they, where do they immediately go? Well, is that translated correctly, transmitted correctly? But if I told them about some dream, and let's say I even just made it up, yep. they'd listen. Yeah. That is completely 180 the wrong thing, yep. right? As we see even in Jesus, in this passage, and in, in every, basically every other. If he's confronted, he often points to the scriptures that God already spoke. That's right. So people can say, well, how do you know? 
Well, once again, I believe uh, in this one God as revealed in Christ, mm-hmm. as documented and interpreted authoritatively by the Spirit in the Holy Scriptures. Yep. Um, we do have a revelational epistemology. Yeah. But the thing is, if you're going to go hyper-skeptical on this, why do you simultaneously become hyper-gullible if I just told you about some dream about white Jesus coming to me? Yeah. Like, that, to me, and if this is triggering, think about why. Don't get just mad at me. Think about why that's triggering. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it's unfair. I think it's there in the culture. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions, but that's there here. Yeah. I've had that several times. People say, well, I've, I know because I've experienced something. Yep. And I said, well, that's kind of a pretty poor place to place your yep. knowing. <laughs> yep. That's right. We are running out of time here. So, um, you know, I, I, there's one, just one thing I want to highlight more. And then yes. if there's anything else you want to cover quickly as well here at the end, we can, but, um, I just want to cover very quickly in the next section in the individual and family manual, it's covering Luke 4, 16 to 32, which is Jesus, uh, claiming that he is the Messiah in the synagogue in Nazareth and people getting upset about it. And uh, the question that's in the LDS curriculum is, if you were asked to, de- to describe what Jesus Christ was sent, on, was sent to earth to do, what would you say? That's a great question, right? It is. You better, you better have an answer to that, you know? <laughs> um, what did Jesus come to do in the first place? And how would an LDS person answer that versus how would a credo Christian answer that? We've covered a lot of that in the podcast already and the differences there. What are some ways the Savior invites you to participate in his work? Again, it turns toward the person there, but then it does turn back uh, towards the end here to the same initial question. Is there anything that might prevent you? And this is in the Come Follow Me curriculum, so LDS people are supposed to ponder. Is there anything that might prevent you from fully accepting Christ as your personal Savior? Now, any credo Christian who's out there who has an experience or a background in evangelical Christianity is going to recognize these sorts of questions as being very familiar because they're the kind of questions that you've heard asked from a pulpit hundreds of times, especially if you come from the background that I came from. And we would say these are good questions, right? Like yes. what, what is it with that, that would it keep is. you from fully accepting Christ as your Savior? What did Christ come to do? And what we are positing in this podcast throughout and will consistently continue to do is that a credo Christian answer of what Christ came to do is going to be vastly different from an LDS answer on that same question. Nicene Creed, is it trustworthy or is it an abomination? That should make the point clear. This is completely different worldviews. Yes, definitely. If you haven't read the Nicene Creed, please go read it. Do it. Yeah. yeah. We've cited Study it on Sunday. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. So obviously, um, even just in talking about the temptations of Jesus, we've made it clear that we differ on what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come as our example setter. He actually came as our savior. Now they even use the savior language. They do. It's like you mean something different by that than what we would mean by that. And so, you know, it seems like this really provoking and almost an evangelical Christian sort of a question, is there anything that might prevent you from fully accepting Christ as your personal Savior? And I just wonder how individuals who are in the LDS Church would answer that. What is it that would prevent you from fully accepting Christ as your personal Savior? Now, from an evangelical Christian perspective, we would not just say Savior, we would say your Lord as well. 
um, we would say that he is not just your savior, your brother, your buddy, your friend who came and did something great for you to have a chance to better your own condition in the next life. We would say that Jesus came and that part of his messianic ministry was to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, which projected this future prophet, priest, and king. Uh, that's what his messianic ministry was all about. And, you know, and this begins to be anticipated all the way from Genesis 3.15, when we see the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He is coming to save his people, to conquer the devil, uh, to crush his wicked head, to establish a kingdom of which he will rule and reign forever, and of which we, if we are in him, will be his subjects, worshiping him forever. There will be a distinction between us and him forever. Uh, we'll, never, we'll never rise to the same level as him. Um, he is distinct, unique. He is God. Um, and so what did Jesus come to do? Ultimately, yes, he came to save a people for himself. Um, but he came to do that for his glory. He came to do that, that he would be glorified with, with the Father. And that, you know, by the Spirit, a people would be drawn to this Trinitarian God to worship them as a, as a, as a creature of this God forever and ever, um, to, to give glory to him. That's why he came. You know, so you've got to answer it that way or you don't have a biblical answer. But then what would keep you from fully accepting Christ as your personal Savior? You may have something else that you want to say here, but I want to read the next sentence that is the subtitle of the next heading. Because what I want to, what I want to say is for LDS people, this is the answer to that question. What would keep you from fully accepting Christ as your personal Savior? Well, it's what your curriculum teaches in the next line where it tells you, as I trust in the Lord, he can help me reach my divine potential. That's why you trust in the Lord from an LDS perspective, because he can help you reach yeah. your divine potential. That very statement is what will keep you yes. from worshiping the true Jesus. Now, help us understand why, Skylar, because we've talked about this idea of what it means to reach the divine potential yeah. But what is what is being really communicated there in an LDS perspective? What does it mean for an LDS person to reach their divine potential? To become a heavenly father for a world they've created like this one. Well, organized, I should say. Yeah. It's, and even if yeah. they want to back off of, well, we don't know if we're going to create worlds. Still, when they say to become like heavenly father. They mean it literally. They, they mean literally they will be on the same You level will progress to that point. That's right. You know, be a Jesus, be a father. Yep. Uh, and it might couch it in words like families forever, but the divine potential is to, you know, as God's, or, you know, as God once was, you know, we are now what he is, we can become kind of thing. I messed up the couplet, but you get the idea. Um, so, it, yeah. And we saw in the Holland talk, right, that Jesus came to to make it more explicitly Gnostic, reveal secret knowledge about how being equal with God is not robbery. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. I, I just plead out there, uh, any LDS listeners, reconsider. Like, take that first question absolutely seriously and realize that even how righteous you're living, it's both filthy rags before a holy God. I mean, people get how sin can get in the way. Yeah. They don't get how righteousness can get in the way. Yep. 
And I think um, there's a lot of LDS people that will really miss that. Um, yeah, and, and I would say just quickly and then kick it over to you for last things, but um, if Jesus is ever just a means to an end yeah, for cosmic you Oprah in your religion, yeah. if he is a means to you yep. progressing and being better, and he is not the end in itself. Yeah. He he's not the treasure that you are possessing. He's not, you know, the joy and the love and the peace and and all the things that come by way of his spirit at work in you. If your vision of your future is not that I will be filled with the fullness of Christ and I will dwell in his presence forever, and that is what I long for more than anything else. If, if he's anything other than that for you, then you've actually got a false Christ. You've got a false religion with a false goal that is committing all the, frankly, atrocities that the false religions that are battled against all throughout the Bible were committing. Yeah. And, and that's a problem. It is. Um, but here is the good thing. There is a true Jesus that is, is far more glorious. Yes. So, so don't, don't, you know, get offended um, as hard as it's going to be to realize that there's a difference between a false Jesus that you saw in a vision and the true Jesus that's revealed in the scriptures. Instead, run to the true Jesus, because I'm telling you, he's better. He is. he is better than any of the false manifestations that have been created by men throughout the centuries. Yeah, and we're not trying to lead you into nothingness. We're not trying to lead you into, well, just get what you can out of life. I mean, that's how what happens with a lot of people that leave. Uh, but I know Sandra Tanner is with us on this. That's a big name. Most Mormons recognize Sandra Tanner is yeah. with us on this. We want you to find the true Jesus revealed in the reliable Bible. Yeah. Um, and to, and even if you don't subjectively feel it, but you're starting to understand what we're saying, pray that God will give you a new heart. Yeah. Help, pray, God, help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. Um, to end, I'd love this yes. parable. Um, it's so key. This is Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, one quick note. People think of the Pharisees as the worst of the worst. That's not true. They were the best of the worst. <laughs> as you can see from what he says, if you're just looking at relatively peer-to-peer, neighbor-to-neighbor righteousness, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were on the covenant path. They have a temple recommend or whatever. And treated others with contempt. Now, that might not be as visible. But once again, if you're like, I'm, I know because of some subjective experience and other people don't have that, it's inevitably going to lead to a spiritual contest where you have to say, well, if the, you know, I'm better in some way. Right? Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Notice he's thanking God. He acknowledges grace. Mm-hmm. God, I thank you for making me not like other men. Yep. It's not Pelagian, it's semi-Pelagian. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Notice, there's no evidence in here of him subjectively recognizing this. Any more than the thief on the cross whom Jesus saved had the right theology. Why? Because he chooses. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, exalts himself, will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Mm-hmm. Those are the words of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's good. Join us next week. We will actually be in John 2-4 to four at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us today. Have a nice one.